when I was in college, we were in this class I took, asked to read an essay by a wonderful American cultural critic named Susan Sontag, who's written in 1966, so it's now, it's actually 50 years since its publication. It was called Against Interpretation, and was a very, very important essay. It actually had a lot of repercussions in the world of um, art and cultural criticism. And you might at first wonder why I'm going to give, I'm going to intro the talk with this, but I think it'll become pretty apparent. In this article, Susan Sontag says that there's two kinds of way we can look, ways we can look at art. The first is what she calls the interpretive way. Interpretation is the kind of awareness that tries to extract a concealed message from art. It asks the question, what does this mean? So sometimes when you look at a painting or you watch a movie, you might be wondering, okay, what's the point? What's this trying to tell me? What's this trying to get across? And in essence, we're translating a very rich experience into an idea. We're trying to extract meaning from experience. This tendency to interpret limits the freedom of our subjective response and that it puts the fundamental importance of our impressions and the way we feel looking at a piece of art aside and just ask that we try to make sense of it. We try to figure out art like it's a puzzle like it's got some underlying moral that we're supposed to come away from. And it creates a certain degree of anxiety that maybe everybody else in the movie theater or looking at this painting gets it. You know, standing in front of a, a Mark Rothko or a Jackson Pollock painting, maybe they see something and I don't. Maybe they know what this means. Uh, the second form of, of looking at art, she said, is formalist. And the... It's not a great label, but the idea is that it simply looks at art in terms of what is my experience with this piece? How do I take it in? How do I feel when I look at it? And how was this piece formally put together in and of itself? So do we like the way the, the brush strokes? Do we like the composition? Do we like the choice of colors? Everything we need to know looking at a piece of art is there. We don't need to extract anything hidden. There's nothing to figure out. For instance, if you're interpreting a movie, you're trying to figure out what does aliens, I'm saying this for my friend Barkley, what does it mean? What does aliens mean? You might, some people interpret aliens as uh, uh, an allegory about the Vietnam War. I didn't particularly see it. I saw it as an allegory of uh, the unconscious, our fear of the unknown, but whatever. As you can see, I'm just as guilty of interpretation as the, the next person. But if we're not interested in interpretation, if we're interested in a formal enjoying art, we don't care what aliens mean. We just like looking at it. We like the lighting. We like the, the way this, each shot is composed, how the camera angles. We can just like the way it's put together. 
we can just be with and enjoy experiencing a movie without figuring out whether we've extracted the correct message or meaning, what the director, Ridley Scott in this case, intended. And according to Sontag, it appreciates and keeps the sensuality and magic of experience. Our contemporary emphasis on interpreting and figuring out what things mean demeans our experience in life. It makes us constantly walking around looking for a takeaway rather than appreciating each experience in and of itself. And as you can see, I'm subtly shifting this from looking at art to a more spiritual approach to this article, which is um, letting go of figuring out what our important experiences are trying to tell us and instead being with the fullness of life's experiences without wondering how we're going to talk about it, what we're going to say about it, how we're going to express it to our friend. You know, if you ever go to one of those tourist spots, perhaps there's a spot down by the water where a lot of people come to, uh, to look at the Manhattan skyline, but a lot of people just stand there and take constant photographs. The idea being that I have to extract from this experience of finally being here and seeing New York, I have to instead turn it into an iconic takeaway that I can look at in the future. I found myself, in my mind, reviewing experiences when I was in Thailand on retreat, reviewing, okay, well, this meal was... Very good, I'll give it four stars out of five. Extracting, turning life's richness into this is good, this is bad, this was worthwhile, this I'd do again, that I'll never do again, that'll teach me for doing this, that'll teach me for doing that. Of course, it started as a great survival advantage that we could take very complex experiences and due to our language skills, ratchet them down to very simple messages or ideas that we could carry around and that would help us survive. So, for example, I'm making this up, but I assume that in the past when we were hunting and gathering and we would reach into a certain, I don't know, foliage trying to get some berries and then a snake would lash out at us, it would be helpful to know Hey, Joe, over there, that's where the snake is. Unsafe foliage. Sorry. That's right. <laughs> Unsafe, bad, stay away. That's a good, that's a survival advantage, right? That's a, that helps us keep going. That helps us not be eaten. This kind of food I ate, I got sick. It's helpful to be able to say, inedible. It's helpful to, to reduce the entire experience of eating this, I don't know, whatever it is you ate that you can't eat, you can't digest, or maybe eat something that tastes delicious. That we so depend on something can be easily indicated by the amount of words dedicated to a practice. They say, I read somewhere that there are something like, how many words for snow and, and into it, you know? 
Why am I asking? <laughs> Mirza should know that, right? So the, since none of you know, I'm going to make up a number. There are 27. There are 27 words for snow. It's how many? 13? That's not, as, that's not good enough. 27. No, thank you. I'll go with that. 13. 13 doesn't sound impressive. You couldn't have kicked that up a little bit? You sounded so authoritative. 13 words for snow. 13, really? All right, we'll go with that. We'll go with 13. So we have one word, snow, because it's not that important. It's not something we have to deal with, like Inuits. Did I say Inuits before? I said Inuits, whatever. Inuits. So um, we have unending, I looked up in uh, the thesaurus online, uh, summarize, and it just went on and on and on. I can't even read you all that, but I'll just give you a couple just to give you. Synopsize, epitomize, recap, rehash, sum up, digest, recapitulate, review, pare down, boil down, get to the point, put it in a nutshell. You get, you get the idea. We are addicted to figuring out what something means so that we don't have to think about it or experience it anymore. We do this because we are bombarded with sensations in our current life. In the current world, we have constant sensory bombardment. So what there's this underlying feeling that if we can't constantly just summarize things and get to the point, we're going to either, one, miss out on something important, or two, we'll be swallowed alive by this overwhelm of sensations. So what we do on the phone, texting and... Somebody's talking to me, okay, can you get to the point? Can you tell me what you mean? Can you let me know what's going on? Just can you put it in two words? Can you, you know, etc. We don't want to anymore open to the fullness of an experience. And of course, that diminishes so much of life. And when we do learn to open to experience and really take it in, then it becomes overwhelming. I was, uh, I, not in a good way, it really returns the magic to life. I was talking with a friend today, and she said that uh, when she went to Burning Man, she came back, and because everything in Burning Man is so, you know, they have all these, I guess, interactive stuff, and you got attractive people running around in fur bikinis, I don't know what they wear, with goggles, you know, and they're all taking great pictures of themselves amid snowstorms or sandstorms, and they're, you know, they're looking at art, and they got, you know, this thing going on and the other, and it looks amazing. You can tell I've never been. <laughs> I'm too much of a neurotic New York Jew. They just spot me, you oh, who's coming? Lock the burning man up. You know, this not available. So, uh, but anyway, she said when she came back, it was wonderful, overwhelming. It was like, and that she brought that mindset into New York, and that everything in New York became magical too. And that she had this wonder, <gasps> look at this, a subway, you know. <laughs> look at this, you know, uh, uh, uh I don't know, take away Korean food. This is amazing. This is amazing. Everything around us is incredible. And then, though, the rush, the busyness, 
the return to closing off and needing to extract immediately over time not only diminished the magic of life, but it also returned all the stress. Because when we diminish life, and when we try to extract too quickly just what it means, and then we don't look, then we start to feel hollow and empty, we start to feel disappointed, we start to feel distant, we start to feel alienated from our own lives, and we start to be closed off. So I was, I was looking up this idea on Google, because I thought, well, there's got to be some good stuff written about the tendency to overinterpret in Buddhism, you know. And oddly enough, I kid you not, one of the first things that came up was me. <laughs> I have, I've, four, years, four years ago, four years ago, actually, I wrote an article on Shambhala's son about this very same idea. I thought at first it was, I was coming up because I'm like the most, like at, at the retreat I was hanging out with different teachers and my friend Dave, who's a, a, a teacher and he very often, like uh, so many Buddhist teachers, we all have our different takes and uh, whenever Dave and I have a Dharma battle, I, I <laughs> I overwhelm him with my neuroscience and my psychology and, and this, and and try to and try to uh, to try to make my case, whatever. So he called me an intellectual terrorist. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so you've all got Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> this is me. I, it's really egotistical to read oneself in a class, but I'm already giving you my ideas, so I might as well just keep up with it, and I sound better here than I do just prattling on to you. In this article four years ago called Letting Go of What It All Means, the mind has a tendency to search for meaning and underlying message, even in every murky or complex experience. We prefer to file away life's rich experiences in terms of thoughts and messages, rather than pre-verbal feeling states, the physical somatic sensations that arise and pass. Over-reliance on figuring it out leads to the, a repression of the physical elements of life and a delusional belief that every situation or encounter has a simple hidden message that needs to be uncovered. Boy, do I sound smart in this. <laughs> I'm really taken by myself, you can tell. Anyway, uh, we all do this when we go through breakups or losses or get fired. There's this, the mind fires up its engines trying to come up with the takeaway. That'll teach me for dating a Canadian. Or, <laughs> I don't know, if you're from Canada, please don't. I, 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 that just came into my mind. I love Canadians. Leonard Cohen, I don't know, I don't know what I'm doing here. Okay, anyway. Uh, but we want to find, you know, we want to figure out why we got fired. We want to figure out what we're going to say about it, how we're going to make sense. So we just can't be with and open to, okay, this is what it feels like. Obviously, extracting a message makes us feel safer. We believe if we just figure it out, we won't have to feel grief or loss 
or separation or despair, that I won't have to feel the breakup if I can just figure out what it means. But it doesn't work that way. All we're doing is repressing, and those emotions just don't go away. They keep coming back in more and more dysregulated forms. And then in the future, if we haven't felt the sadness or the grief of painful experiences, then later on, when we are dating somebody new, we will project onto them all of the things that we haven't processed about the, pre the past relationship. This tendency to interpret versus the, intent, the ability to take in the wholeness of experience boils down to the two fundamental areas of the brain, the left hemisphere versus the right. The left, which is conscious, is language-based, it tends to split whole experience down into small parts and, and describe them in terms of abstract ideas, good, bad, right, wrong, helpful, unhelpful, looking for this underlying trait. The right hemisphere, which is the emotional mind, takes in the whole of experience as interwoven impressions and physical sensations. And we have that capability, we just tend to push it aside when we go into thought and try to constantly figure it out rather than pay attention to our physical sensations, to our breath, to the way life feels. So we need balance. We need balance in life. We're never going to be able to get rid of that tendency to try to figure out what it means to come away with a moral, a learning. It's too deeply embedded in our human DNA, our, the, the brain. And the Buddha definitely said this. There's a point to figuring out and, and understanding. It boils down to the he had what's called wrong view, wrong understanding, of life, which is ditti upadana. And the idea of wrong is that it doesn't ever stop. Wrong views keep multiplying and keep multiplying and they turn into obsession. They fill up the mind. Right view, the Buddha said, is much more simple. It's an interpretation that arises over a lot of experience and time. It's not placed on very quickly. And when we have right view, it tends to be very simple and just, it doesn't create more thought. We know. For example, after a breakup, when we're talking with our friends, well, that'll, that'll show me. I always knew that, that he or she or whatever was, was like this, and I should have known, and I should have figured out this, and the next time I'm going to be on the lookout for that thing. That'll be a red flag for me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, rather than feel the emotions, feel the sadness, feel the mix of impressions. And then over time, when we look back on that relationship, entirely different, simple understandings arise, such as we were two totally different people in search of two totally different needs from life. And that doesn't really fire up a lot of thinking. The biggest thing that creates wrong view, obsessive extraction of ideas, is trying to figure out what it all means about me. Putting ourselves into it. 
There's a wonderful sutta called the Vipalasa Sutta where the Buddha says, friends, there are four ways we come up with perverted interpretations of life. What are the four? We try to make things that are fleeting constant. We turn things that are ultimately unpleasant or disappointing into pleasant. We fixate on the attractive, forgetting that it will decay. And we take things personally that are not personal. So that tendency to make the inconstant constant is where we're rushing in life to turn a, one experience into a rule, an unpleasant conversation with somebody, a difficult experience where somebody uh, acts unskillfully towards us at work, a disappointing family event. We immediately try to just turn it into a lesson or an idea or know how we'll talk about it to other people rather than sit and experience it, feel it, be with the what the emotions that have been activated. Making the disappointing pleasant and mistaking the attractive, I'm sorry, the unattractive for attractive, is simply what happens when we rush too quickly to <coughs> pronounce judgment on things. Every new damned product that Apple makes looks shiny and life-saving to me in the Apple Store window. It just looks great. As my friend Dave said, his favorite color is shiny. I think that's mine, too. We, we see something new, and it looks great. And then you get it home, and you take it out of the box, and the, the thin thing on it, and you're looking at it, it's like, I can't believe I have such a beautiful thing. And then a little bit, a few days later, it starts to have some grime on it and grease, and you're like, the magic's gone. <laughs> This isn't solving my life after all. So we jump too quickly to try to uh, solve or understand or review to take away a message. Finally, taking things personally in psychology is known as the fundamental attribution error. This is happening to me. My pain, my sorrow, my sadness... My loneliness is worse. Other people don't have it because it's happening in my brain, in my head, or in my experience, internal experience. Therefore, it must be mine. Not true. I can tell you, my work is meeting with people uh, and hearing them talk about uh, really important experiences, and I've yet to hear a new emotion, a new feeling, or a new, even really unique event. It just doesn't happen. Our internal experience may feel like it's happening to us and that other people don't know what it's like, but there are always people outside that do, and the ability to connect with others who are having that same experience is vital to take us out of the personalizing, jumping to the interpretation that this is happening to me. I'll end with a, a wonderful, I think it's a wonderful story. I like to tell this one. I was on a spiritual retreat 
15 years ago, and uh, a famous, uh, actually AA slash Buddhist guy named Earl H. was speaking at this event, and um, he told the story in his life he had uh, gotten cancer when he was very young. It was uh, supposed to kill him, and they gave him an experimental trial, and it didn't. And then to celebrate, his family took him on an airplane ride to go down to Mexico, and the plane crashed. And his entire family died. And they were all, he and his family members, all dead, were hanging upside down. He couldn't move. And two days later, bandits came and robbed the bodies of his family in front of him. Didn't know he was... Uh, still alive because he couldn't move. And then finally they were found and uh, he was dumped into a back of a truck with the bodies of his family. If this is sounding pretty traumatic, I think it's fair to say it must have been. And then he was driven to a hospital where he took six months to recuperate. He broke something like... I don't know how many, I'm not even going to guess the number, but he broke so many bones in his body. And so after he got out of the hospital, he tried to, to kill himself with drugs and alcohol, but no matter how many drugs he consumed, he couldn't die. He just didn't. Something about that guy just doesn't want to perish, right? He tells a story around AA, and through the years gratified that he can help people, but he still feels that there's some singular experience that he's had that other people haven't. Then in one meeting, when he gets up to speak and says, Hi, I'm Earl H., a woman starts crying and runs to the front of the room and hugs him. And confused, he hugs her back and then asks her what's going on. And it turns out that she, too, was in a plane crash that claimed all the members of her family, and that it was his story that saved her from killing herself. So if that can happen, I guarantee you that there is no possible experience that you can ever have that is about you. I thank you for listening. I hope there was something of value there.